Listener Production. Hi, I'm Dilrup Jai Singer. My health and wellness journey began when I lost over 30 kilos. Since then, I've learned how focusing on being healthy both physically and mentally can turn your life around and put you in the driver's seat. And it isn't all eating kale and doing 100 burpees either, although we probably will talk about that. I'm lucky enough to be joined by experts as well as a bunch of idiot comedy mates of mine to talk everything from weight loss to waking up refreshed. Um, without the meditation music and wind chimes, please. So far, we've talked about having a hobby and exercise. But in this episode, we will fuse those two things together like sushi tacos and look at social sport. Joining a cricket club or footy team for some weekend games is a great move for your overall health. You'll stay fit, make new friends and be part of a community. But if the standard sports don't interest you too much, then stick around because we're going to be looking at a few sports that you might not know about. In fact, I don't even know about it because my producers have made me try and guess what the sports are. My first guest is someone that knows all too well about the benefit of social sport. Craig Foster is a former socceroo, broadcaster, human rights advocate and adjunct professor of sport and social responsibility at Torrens University. Craig, the episode is about social sport. You're talking to someone who whose family pretty much prioritized academia over sport. Other than the obvious ones like fitness, what do you reckon are some of the things that I've missed out? When it comes to the the other forms of value, and by the way, just physical health and mental health, of course, which is which go hand in hand, so powerfully important a contribution that sport makes to a country like Australia. For people just to have even a weekly dose of sporting participation across whatever it is that you're interested in and enjoy doing, the long-term benefits physically and psychologically are great, not just for that individual, but actually for broader society as well. My final answer to your question would be social interactions. And above all, that's probably the most important. Yeah. Right? What sport does is it provides a, a kind of safe, central space for everyone to come together through a shared passion. Now, if you think about life, that's really quite rare. You know, we come together in millions, hundreds of millions through religion, for example, but, you know, that often builds barriers between communities. We come together through music, but that can be divided uh, culturally, linguistically and, you know, continentally. But when it comes to sport, we come together across all of these boundaries. So religion doesn't matter, culture doesn't matter, agenda doesn't matter. Through that, there is immense almost incalculable social interaction, which grows all of our understanding of how to interact with people and how to win and lose together, how to be part of a group or perhaps individual sport. And my specific focus where I'm at at the moment as a member of the Australian Multicultural Council is social sports influence on social cohesion and integration of multicultural communities and that cannot be questioned. It's an extraordinary contribution that sport makes to people coming to a country like Australia, finding a new home, finding their own community, playing against and competing against and being on the same team with people in Australia across all cultural backgrounds, getting those interactions moving, you know, breaking that cultural inertia 
Um, speaking of interaction, I'm interacting with a next door neighbour here. I think it's just it's just started some form of. <laughs> <laughs> it's not sport, but it's some form of gardening. <laughs> but you know, it's fascinating. You mentioned that thing about community and people coming from overseas. My partner just moved from WA to Melbourne, and you forget how hard it is to make friends when you're an adult, unless you're, you know, going to a bar and you know. And I'm not a drinker anymore. You can't underestimate how hard it is to connect with a fellow adult and having sport as your common ground. I think it's something that gets overlooked a lot because you've a got a common goal in soccer, quite literally. But but also it's that thing of teaching people that you're not alone. That's that's totally true. Many sporting clubs and and my game of football is a great example has community based teams and clubs. So that means there's a whole social environment where people new to the country can engage with their own communities to feel comfortable, to feel safe, to feel supported, to speak in language. When they do it through sport, they also cross this other line, which is this one of passion, which makes it very special. Mm. That creates immediate conversations, that creates an immediate connection between us. And what I feel about sport is that by interacting in that way, it gives us time to get to know each other and time to be able to challenge each other and have conversations about the more difficult differences that we have. We perhaps came from two countries where, you know, there are historical enmities. We might come from two different religions. We might have a whole range of barriers which would normally put us in circumstances where we may not talk at all. Secondly, when we talk, we may immediately have all of these prejudice and biases, even if subconscious. However, if I come into a team with you and all of a sudden we pull on the same jersey and we decide that we're going to play football, then I don't have to say much to you, but you're my mm. teammate now. And we lose together, we win together. And over a little bit of time, we start to understand actually we're just really the same because the way we interact with the game is the same. Mm. So we can see through sport that we are exactly the same, which gives us some comfort to then be able to start to have very, very different conversations. So the, that contribution to social cohesion, I think it's beyond question. There's a phrase I think about a lot is, which is you can't become what you can't see. I I didn't grow up in Australia, but my friends who are people of color who did grow up here say how challenging it was not seeing Mm. their versions of themselves on the telly. And now there's this push. Do you feel that importance of diversity, does that extend to sport as well? All of our social institutions should very evidently reflect the society that we live in and who we are and the nature of politics, the nature of power, the nature of social systems and institutions means that that takes some time and it has to be constantly challenged in order to change. When we say diversity, we're just saying, I would say authenticity because Australia is a diverse nation. So what all we're asking for is, you know, just the reality of our society to be reflected in power and institutions. So sport is the same. This conversation around diversity happens around me so often. This is the first time that anyone has framed it as being authentic and it is so powerful. Like I literally got goosebumps right now because it feels like you're having to fight for something and you're being unreasonable pushing for diversity. But you just mentioning saying, no, no, it's just an authentic representation of Australia has just given me goosebumps. So I just want to affirm and say thank you for saying that. I've never looked at it that way. 
Oh, that's fun. That's great. Because now we have diversity and inclusion, and so everything gets systematised. But the downfall of that is that those who define the terms come to really define and lead the space. I think often those terms just don't bring to life what it is that we're trying to achieve. I've been in the multicultural game, the game with more diverse cultures playing it in Australia than any other. So this is why I speak in this language, because the game of football is Australia. It is the immigrant game, of course, we do have First Nations playing as well, and that really defines the game of football. And speaking of the, the, the world game, soccer, and you're representing Socceroos, I'm assuming at the time when you were performing at that peak that your life is consumed with the idea of soccer and, and the best version of yourself you can be. But as happens with everything, eventually retirement comes in and there's an identity shift. I know you play with the Waverly Old Boys uh, over over 35s now. <laughs> and uh, what are those barriers that you came across and how did you overcome them to continue enjoying sport? I didn't face the type of barriers that you hear about from, you know, some elite athletes in that playing sport and kicking a football was never, even when I was playing professionally, playing in the UK or I was, you know, in the Socceroos, was never my whole world. It was the whole world of many of those that I played with and I recognised that at the time. Quite possibly to my sporting detriment, I was always as equally interested in other areas, including politics or social justice or other other things. And so I was therefore able to have, I think, a bit of a broader view, be involved in many different programs such that when the time came to retire, uh, I was able to just move into many organisations that I was already working with. I mean, one was broadcasting, but to step onto the board of many charities and then to start work in policy and, and to finish my law degree and other things. So, but, you know, having said that, I wasn't number one in the world. You know, I wasn't Diego Maradona or Lionel Messi. Let's go back to the example of me as someone who never got into social sport. I'll tell you some of the barriers to entry that I'm having in my head is because I'm scared of starting and letting the team down. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm so inept. I do runs and I work out at the gym. So that's been my focus for fitness. Are there things you can say to dissipate some of those fears and anxieties about starting a whole new kind of journey into connecting with people through sport? Provided that you go in at the right level, um, everyone feels the same, so don't worry about it. It's like going to a party, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, if I go to a party where everyone is pretty much new, they put us all in a room and expect us to get on, it's incredibly awkward and it's very, very difficult. But the only way to get through it is to realise that everyone else is feeling the same way. And the other thing about sport is there's a million of them, literally. You can always find something that you have some minimal capability at. <laughs> well, I'm, I'd imagine you could. but We've got a segment coming up on the podcast where we talk to people with interesting sports that I'm, you know, have to guess what they do. And I'm pretty sure they range from, you know, playing Quidditch, which is a, a wizarding sport somehow, to, to maybe darts. I don't know. There's always something That's for right. everybody, I think. And that's why gyms became so popular is because people wanted to move and wanted to feel the endorphins of exercise and we get the sense after exercise, you know, as much as a pain as it is, afterwards we feel so great, we feel so healthy, our appetite improves and it's in a space where it's really quite easy. You don't necessarily have to compete against others but don't be confined to that. There is a real dignity in losing with a team and being able to deal with it and then going away and working a little bit and holding each other to account gently, saying, look, you could have done better today. I know I could have. All of those things we don't get the opportunity to do in most corporate environments. It's a, it's a very rich 
social environment when you're in a sport team. Craig, you're currently involved in something called Sport for Good. What exactly is that? Yeah, I really love it. I had the opportunity with Torrens University to write a new course that provides the information to people within the sport environment in any capacity as to what the expectations are, what the responsibilities are, and what tools can assist in sport doing social good. So, for example, you know, we speak with Adam Goods about anti-racism and the impact of the stance that he took in AFL, for example. We talked to the Centre for Sport and Rights in Geneva to change the thinking of athletes a little bit and provide them, without doing a law degree, to provide them a basic framework, rights-based framework under the international legal system so that they can advocate for really important things here in Australia which are always on the agenda, but they can do so safely, they can do so from a a legal perspective. And it also would be encouraging for people younger to know that these are becoming safer spaces for their perspectives to be heard and seen. So sport has to be safe space for everyone. So therefore non-discrimination is, you know, basically the founding principle of sport. There are many different belief systems and we've seen issues recently in rugby league, but ultimately in sport, non-discrimination is the most important red line that can't be crossed. Um, So people can have beliefs, but not to the detriment of someone else. So they're all really important conversations and athletes need to understand them. So it's a free online course, which does, it takes about 12 to 14 hours uh, to just work through all the modules and the videos of many of the top practitioners and case studies around the world for athletes and sports administrators to understand how to utilize the social capital of sport to better society. Thank you so much for joining us. If our listeners want to seek out more of your work, what's the best resource for them to go check out? Oh, they could probably go to craigfoster.net. There's a whole range of things on there, some of the docos that have been made, the die or die trying doco about the young girls that we got out of uh, Kabul uh, last year, for example, and and many other things to watch and and organisations and causes to get involved in. Social sport can take a number of different forms. Yes, footy, cricket, netball, they're all great, but there are some other pretty unique sports out there too, like underwater rugby or Quidditch. That's a genuinely real thing. If you can dream it, there's probably a team in Australia where you can play it, and if not, set up your own team. To prove that, my producers have arranged a special game for me. These next guests are members of Australian sporting teams that you might not have heard of. The hard part for me, I haven't even heard of them either. In front of me, I have a single piece of paper with a couple of names on it. That's it. My job is to try and figure out what unique sport they play. This is the guest guest. <laughs> so this is the way it works. I will have three questions. Yeah. Is it? Seriously, yep. just three? Just three questions. I might do four. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, I'll just try and stick to three and figure out what sport this person plays. Righto. My first guest, well, all I know is your name is Kyle. <laughs> Let's go, Kyle. Thanks for having me. How are we today? Well, not very happy about this restriction on questions that I have. I thought I had about 10 <laughs> questions or 20 questions seems to be the fair amount. So, Kyle, first first question, is there a ball involved in your sport? We do not use a ball in our sport, no. Okay. Okay. Um, do you play it inside? So we can play it indoors or we can play it outdoors. Mm, oh God, you've given me nothing there. But you did say we. Feels like a team sport. Okay, let's say, what's the worst injury you've had playing this sport? Or what's the worst injury you've seen, witnessed? Worst injury that I've witnessed is um, someone twisted and uh, fractured their foot. 
twisted and fractured their foot. So no ball. It's mostly played outdoors, but can be done indoors. Is it beer pong? I've twisted my foot a few times in beer pong when I just <laughs> kept losing. And just That's a good guess. <laughs> Don't know that you can classify that once as a sport. How dare you, Kyle Rowe? Um, okay, I'm going to give myself. I'm going to give myself one more question. Do you need to wear safety gear when playing this sport? Yes, you definitely need safety gear while playing the sport. Oh my god! Um, is it frisbee? It's a good guess, but no, it's not. All right. What is it, Kyle Rowe? All right. So we play a sport called dodgebow. So what it is, is it's combat archery. So <laughs> wait, wait, you... wait, wait, slow down, slow down. I need to process these words that aren't in the dictionary. <laughs> dodgebow. Let me try and unpack that. So I'm assuming there's a dodgeball element, but using a bow and arrow. So you, you actually shoot uh, with a bow and arrow? Yes, that's correct. So we have arrows that are specifically designed with foam tip heads on them, and you use a bow and arrow to play a whole bunch of games that would be similar to either paintball or laser tag, those sort of games, and you shoot each other with bows uh-huh. and arrows. Wow. How long have you been playing dodgeball? So um, I'm actually one of the owners. Um, we've been in operation for about seven years now. Wow. Okay, okay. Talk me through this. How does something like this start? I'm assuming you're watching Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson uh, in the Dodgeball movie. And at the same time, you switch over and you're seeing, you know, Arrow. (laughs) And you're like, oh, you're seeing Hawkeye. You're watching Hawkeye. And you're like, hey, let's merge these two together. So originally, the sport originates from the live action role playing scene, actually. They use uh, these foam arrows. Yeah, LARPing, right? So They use these foam arrows. They've already got all the safety arrows and things like that. So we took the sport and decided that instead of having all these different arrows and stuff, why don't we create a sport that's very similar to paintball or those other ones, make it a little bit more accessible so we can actually have 10-year-olds play all the way through to we've had 67-year-olds play. And, yeah, basically decided that we'd make a whole bunch of game types like capture the flag and team deathmatch and things like mm. that, throw a whole bunch of barriers up on a field somewhere and everyone grabs a bow, arrow, go through some training and shoot each other and have a ball. <laughs> so has anyone taken it too far? Has anyone got too serious about it and got white line fever and just went on a went postal with a bow and arrow? <laughs> Look, no, we've got a, we've got a lot of safety, so we wear safety masks when we go into the competitive scene. People have cups and things as well if they would like them. Look, people do take it very seriously when it comes into our competitive scene. We use different arrows that they're still padded, but they hit a lot harder and faster than the ones we use ah. in our public events. How fit does one have to be to be able to play dodgeball? Or? There's a game style for everyone. So if you're not as fit as some of the ones that run up and capture the flag and play right in the middle of the field and you don't want to get a hit a whole bunch, you know, you can just sit at the back if you want. You can snipe from far away or you can get up close to the action and you can run over the other side and try and shoot people and you get shot a lot. Yeah, so there's a bit of a play style for all fitness levels. I love the idea of a sniper. Have you taken down a sniper from afar? My favorite play is probably I watched two people. One was running for the flag and another one was defending. Someone shot an arrow and the other guy that was running for the flag dodged it 
and the guy behind him shot his arrow. Both arrows hit in the middle of the air, collided, and fell on the spot, protecting the guy that was going for the flag. That is ridiculous. And we actually got it on film, so oh, really? it was quite fun. <laughs> I actually really want to see that, genuinely. Yeah, yeah let's, let's just say it Send was. it to me on Instagram. <laughs> if people want to find out more about Dodgeball, Kyle, where can people go to? Um, so we just got our website, which is www.dodgeball.com.au. And then we've also got Dodgeball Australia, which you can find on Facebook, uh, Instagram. We love getting out there. It's a passion of ours. It's definitely a different sport. We get a lot of kids and things involved as well and um, a lot of bucks parties and uh, just a lot of people that don't like traditional sports and love to play something different. All right. Now, our next guest guest is Kevin Costa. Thank you. Love to be here. Thank you, mate. Before I get into the official questions about your sport, I have to know how often do you get references to Bodyguard and Dances with the Wolves? You're the, you're the first person ever to today. Oh, just today. today. <laughs> to today, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go into the questions, Kev. Uh, question number one, is there a ball in your sport? No, there is not a ball in my sport. Ah, okay, okay, okay. And now, Injuries. What are some of the injuries you've seen either happen to you or to other people in your sport? A lot of them have been um, sort of joint injuries, some shoulders, some knees, ankles and things of that type. Yeah, not serious ones, but people being hit by uh, potentially by objects. Oh, okay. That's a clue. Getting hit by objects. We know these objects aren't balls. What else could you be? I mean, how fit do you have to be to play this sport? Uh, you don't have to be extremely fit to play it. You have to be very fit to be very good at it. Okay. Oh, man, I'm going to give myself one more. Do you wear safety gear for this sport? No, you do not. So no safety gear, yet you might get hit with objects. There's no balls involved. Uh, but you have... Uh, I'm going one more question. Indoors or outdoors? Outdoors. You're, you're going to have to tell me because I think I'm out of guesses. Okay. I uh, I play the sport of disc golf. Disc golf. Disc Indeed. golf. Okay. All right. Unpack this for me. So I know golf where you, you know, take a club and you hit the ball mm-hmm. into a hole. Yep. I'm assuming disc is from discus where you fling a disc into the air? You do. You've got um, essentially a series of, I suppose, mo- we're not allowed to call them frisbees because that's a brand name and there's all this issue around that. Oh, really? That. But um, <laughs> a modified discs in a whole yeah. bunch of different profiles and weight distributions and so on. Just like in ball golf, as we would call it, uh-huh. we have putters, we have mid-ranges, we have drivers with different profiles and different purposes. You throw from a tee area. Oh, so the disc itself is part of the putter or whatever. It, it, there's it no is, actual yes, stick yeah. that you hit the disc no, with. No, you actually throw the, throw the discs. The holes, there's par three, par four, par five. So structurally, it's very similar to traditional golf. Rather than putting a ball in a hole, you're throwing a disc at a kind of an elevated metal basket made of a kind of a chain configuration and uh, ultimately trying to hit that and drop it into the basket. This is incredible. How long have you been playing this? I have been playing for about eight years now. In that time, I've seen it grow from a... Relatively obscure sport. Some would say still relatively obscure, but it's currently the fastest growing sport in the world with about three to four million people now regularly playing disc golf around the world. <laughs> this, I, I, I love that it is the fastest growing, but it's, it's literally the first time I've heard of it. And wh- what's your involvement? How did you get involved? Or did you? Yeah, initially I was actually over in New Zealand with a group of students. I'm a teacher and I was running sort of outdoor programs and we were over in Queenstown uh-huh. and we saw this in this park these kind of hairy guys with this bag with <laughs> clearly clearly far too many frisbees. Uh, just, I love that it was what caught your attention was the fact that they were bearded. 
And, uh, and so they've got all these these what we thought were frisbees in their bag, and they're throwing them down the down through the the trees at this this target. And we obviously thought, you you idiots, you really surely you don't need more than one frisbee. And so we started playing, got hooked, came home. I quickly became one of those people with far too many frisbees, and and actually just by coincidence, before too long, I had a beer. But that was beside <laughs> the point. What? So were you a part of the, the founders in Australia, you reckon? No, it's actually been going in Australia. And this, a lot of people find this surprising. There have been disc golf courses that the oldest still in existence disc golf course in Australia has been here since the mid-80s. What? And uh, that's down in, Hob- in Hobart. Yes, so it's been around for a while, but literally the last five years has seen a massive explosion. Mm. And, and part of the growth of the sport has been the fact that during COVID lockdown, people could still get out there, still play disc golf. And so a lot of people really got into it in a big way. So what's happened is with that massive growth, there's also been huge followings, particularly through um, through various social media platforms and, and online coverage. And your top paid professionals now in the States, well, Paul Macbeth, who's the top rated player in the world, has just signed a $10 million endorsement deal from a disc manufacturer and others are now signing multi-million dollar deals. I am limited with how often I can swear, so I'm just going to use it here. What the f- are you talking about 10 million that's incredible mm. oh yeah big big money this is incredible and how um how often do you play in and what kind of like training do you put yourself through uh, most of it is just through practice of the sport i said at, at the top level you're talking about really skillful athletes if you can picture someone throwing discs or a frisbee type object 180 plus meters shaping it through trees. So uh, oh, wow. yeah. the difference between ball golf and disc golf is that we will deliberately use the areas that ball golfers don't use in that we want the, the trees, we want the obstacles, we want the, to be able to shape our shots. And, and a big part of the skill is, as well as the power, is the ability to manipulate the, the flight of the disc in such a way that you can shape it through trees. And hence you have different discs that will perform slightly differently into headwinds, tailwinds, different distances and, and, and so on. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. This is excellent. If people want to find out more information about disc golf, where can they go, Kevin? Yeah, there's a, there's a few places. So um, the Australian Disc Golf have a website, so ADG. Our particular club is the Central West Disc Golf Club. I love how much you love this sport. The best I've done is when my old CD-ROM, when I used to burn CDs and then it didn't transfer correctly, I just fling it across the room at my brother's head. <laughs> but uh, maybe that was training that I was always meant to do. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us, mate. All the best. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good talking to you. Well, it goes to show that if you want to keep active and be part of a team, odds are that there's a team out there just for you. Getting started in social sport is great for your overall health. But the thing is, who is to say that you couldn't be the next LeBron James or Serena Williams? That could be a hidden career that you hadn't even thought about. And what I mean by that is, I don't play hockey for Australia, but I've also never played hockey ever. So technically, that could be the reason I'm not the best hockey player in the country. I also never plan on playing hockey because I love my shins. But it does happen for some people. One minute you're picking up a bat and ball and playing with your mates in your backyard and the next thing you know you're so good you're playing it professionally. My next guest, Australian cricket coach and former cricketer, Brad Hodge, managed to break into that professional world at a very young age. Brad Hodge, firstly, it is quite a surreal moment for me as someone who is a, you know, 
I think 10 or 11 years old during the Boxing Day Test match of 1995 when Morelli was called a chaka. All of a sudden, for me as a kid, Australian cricket became the ultimate enemy. And here we are 30, 20 years later, I'm chatting face to face with you. So it is surreal, but it also is an honor. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Duruk. Yeah, it's an interesting, isn't it? Because I'm very good friends with Morelli Duruk. Yeah. And we've talked about that experience a number uh-huh. of times. I, uh, I played with him a couple of times overseas. I've been involved with him. Yeah, that was a really tough moment for him. There's no doubt about it. it. It hurt the broader cricket community, I think, in that moment. Whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision or the way they went about it was uh-huh. tough. The I Sri Lankan know. community is strong here in Melbourne. They love their cricket. And when you do something like that to a legend of the game, <laughs> it hurts. But having said that, I was always a fan of you know, the great players of Sri Lanka, you know, Mahela Jay Award, Nakuma yeah. Sangakara, even Ajuna Ranatunga yeah. when he was at his best. And uh, <laughs> always fun to watch him trudge off the MCG and, yeah, and not take the field. Walk between the wickets. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, we used to have a lot of fun with that. But, um, yeah, good to be here, mate. Hodgie, when playing as a kid, there must have been a tipping point or some kind of sense that, oh, this might, I might have something in me to go professional do you remember that moment? Was it a coach that said, you know, if you put your head down and get the work done, you'll get there? Probably the dream of being a Formula One driver wasn't realistic, Jeruk. So <laughs> I didn't have the money to get me there. So was, was thought, that one of the sports you loved as nah, a kid? <laughs> I love, look, I love motorsport. But cricket was always the passion. In, in Australian summer, it was always cricket and then yeah. winter was footy, right? Yeah. So that's how it pretty much rolled. I'll, I'll give you an example. So... When we are at school, we had a strike policy that if you got five signatures on this little card, you'd have to do detention Saturday. Mm. Anyway, I was sitting on four signatures in the first week. So I had about another seven weeks to go. Mm. And I was so scared, or not scared of the punishment, but scared that I'd actually miss playing cricket on Saturday. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, no, man, I, I, I'm going to make 50 this week. I can't, I can't sit in detention. No way. I have to be, have to be at the cricket ground, not at school. So I was on my best behaviour for like these seven weeks. I was like a pure angel at school. Didn't get the, my fifth signature. Played cricket, and then got to about 16. Where some attention started coming my way about my skill sets and my level. And my father was actually amazing. We used to go in the middle of winter to Brighton Union, I think it was, or East Brighton, one of those two. And there was, I can't remember his name, but a coach who used to feed balls. Like it was freezing, right? We're freezing Mm. our asses off every Sunday morning during winter at 8 a.m. We'd be down in these nets and he'd sort of teach me technically just how to play defensively because I was very aggressive, right? I played baseball as well. So hitting the ball out of the park or trying to slog it, so to speak, was, was sort of natural. But yeah. playing defensively, I, I thought, nah, man, if it's pitched up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whack it. I don't want to yeah. block it. So he taught me that art of defense, which is critically important. So once we sort of developed that, then it just sort of was a progression. I My performances were always marginally better than everyone else in the competition. And and I was, I was driven to that. I was inspired by my father also. I said to him when I was about 14 that I needed some ambition to perform on the weekend. He said, righto, son, I'll buy you a bacon double cheeseburger deluxe, some fries <laughs> and a Coke for every 50 that you get. I said, righto, Dad, you're on. So my motivation was this bacon double cheeseburger deluxe, a Coke. Anyway, pretty much every Saturday I walked out there and played this defensive game, scrounged my way to 50, raised the bat, walked off, and off we go to either 
McDonald's or Hungry Jacks. That was our Saturday. It was pretty cool. So yeah, if I had to get a psycho, uh, psycho babble about it, it sounds like as long as you have a strong enough why, yes, then you can get anything done. Hundred percent, like it. <laughs> yeah. When I look at the baggy green cap, it's probably was twenty years in the making. Mm. You know, to put that cap on top of my head, and and there was some ups and downs, no doubt about it. The roller coaster of sports hard. So when I put that baggy green on my head, it was a sense of satisfaction knowing that. Yeah, there was a lot of background hard work in there. You say ups and downs. The downs is something that I think no matter what area you're in, whether it's sport, your job, all of us have felt that moment of down, whatever version of down is for us. The trick is being able to process that down and keep moving forward. Do you remember having a feeling like, oh, maybe this may never happen for me and a doubt seeping in? And do you remember if there was anything that you did to kind of persevere through that? Uh, Many times. Yeah. Yeah, the roller coaster of sport, one minute you're going well, the next minute you're sort of down and out. Most times for cricket players over the course of a season, they'll have, let's call it 25% good days. Mm. So if you're a normal person, you roll into work, Monday it's going to be a bad day, Tuesday is going to be a bad day, Wednesday is going to be a bad day, Thursday you're going to achieve what you want Mm -hmm. and then you'll start the process again. Failure in cricket is actually so massive that getting over those failures is really hard. So we set the bar high. You may ask, what's success? Well, success in a batter is probably making 50 or a milestone of 100. We only get to achieve that once in every four bats. Mm. So there really is huge failure every day we live day to day. So what drives us? I guess the motivation to reach the top and we have to become completely consistent. And also there's a lot of competitors. So when I was coming through the the chain of Australian cricket, there were some amazing players, you know, Simon Cadditch, Damien Martin, Andrew Simons, Michael Clark, Michael Hussey. It was just the endless supply of talent. So for us, we had to quickly put aside the negatives and the doubts and realize what our goals were. So we sort of just single-handedly put the blinkers on. We often say in sport that there's this sort of narrow focus. You don't get distracted by the outside world. You also become naive to the outside world, which my wife kindly points out to me that, um, <laughs> you know, you often forget what the surroundings around you and how other people operate. But that's the mindset of what it takes to be a professional sportsman. Um, how do you get by? Look, there were certain times, there was one time in my life where I actually broke down in front of my mother. I was about 22 years of age and it was a game at the MCG, Victoria versus Queensland. And I said to her, I'm not going to go play for my state today, mum. This is the first day in my life that I'd never wanted to play sport. And it was a, it's quite an emotional time because she tried to kindly point out that, A, this is your job and this is your destiny. But to me, I'd, I'd taken a few punches. It mm. felt like the punches were just kept coming and I couldn't get out the other side. And expectation mm. uh, from everyone around, not only yourself but your family, your mates who you see every weekend, You know, why aren't you scoring runs, Hodgie? What's going on? And it just builds up and and builds up. Yeah, for me, I just, I I broke down at the breakfast table and said, unfortunately, mum, today I'm not playing sport. It is something that doesn't get talked about enough, which is you can't train for that moment when your dream job and your passion, the thing that you always hoped for, suddenly is causing you sadness. Mm. Like it just doesn't add up from the outside looking in. I've definitely felt that at times in terms of, you know, being a stand-up comedian seemed so impossible for me. And then it was just like this thing that all of a sudden, 
here we are. But there are moments where I, I get my ass handed to me <laughs> and I'm feeling sad. And I'm like, how, how, it's almost like this really toxic relationship yeah. <laughs> with this thing that you love so much that can bring you down at times. And and there's no one who really prepares you for that. It's it's insane, isn't it? You know, as a, as a comedian, you know whether you've done a good job or not. You, mm. you judge by the crowd and their reaction. Same as a sportsman, I guess. When you walk off the field, it's undeniably up there on the scoreboard how well you've done. You've uh-huh. either got a duck, five, ten, or it says your name up in lights. It's not ambiguous. There's no, yeah. No, there's there's no disputing it. It's statistical, and I guess that's why we say we are bound by statistics because they don't lie. So yeah. for us, it's a real challenge, and and we are governed to probably be, you know, averaging higher than everyone else. So that morning when you, you had that moment of uh, vulnerability with your mum, did you end up playing that day or? I did actually, yes. So I was late, late to the ground, believe mm. it or not. So apparently we won the toss and elected to have a bat. I wasn't at the ground when that happened. I was speeding up, uh, I shouldn't say speeding, but I was pushing the boundary <laughs> of 60 kilometres an hour up Punt Road. Yep. So Because I knew that the game started at 11 o'clock. It was about what, probably 10.42 as I was entering <laughs> Hunt Road and got to the ground at 10.51 uh-huh. and I was opening the batting. I had three minutes to literally get the pads on <laughs> and walk out to bat and face Craig McDermott and Michael Kasperwitz. Right. So it's a challenge in itself, right? Good news is, is that over the course of that day, I got sledged by the great Alan Border oh, yeah? um, consistently for about 15 overs. And the positive thing is I walked off and made – I think it was around 65. Yeah. So it didn't get the love back straight away, but it, it released the sort of energy. I must admit that on the field, I sledged Alan Border pretty pretty hard. One of your heroes. Yeah, yeah, one of my <laughs> heroes, right? And like we had a proper verbal stoush in the middle yeah. of the MCG. And I don't even know what happened. It was just a, a release, right? Yeah. So it was a build-up of emotion and pressure. Guess who it landed on? The great Alan Border. Could you believe it? I, uh, I was shattered after the game. So you needed to learn the lessons you needed to at the time you did. However, if you could, you know, go back in time to that 22-year-old, what are some of the things that may have helped that kid managing that situation better, maybe even preventing that burnout? Probably opening up. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I think just talking about it and understanding that, yeah, you're actually finding it quite difficult. Because um, it must have felt not normal to feel that, hey, at the time, because no one was talking about those things. No, it was completely abnormal. You know, we're in a heated environment in the the Coliseum most weekends at the MCG, battling it out state versus state. And it's a tough environment. There's no doubt about it. Looking back on it, I probably could have surrounded myself with better leaders and better people. I think that I also need to be responsible to say that, um, yeah, I went down a path that probably wasn't the right choice for me. And mm. how do you get out of that? Well, you probably need courage to know that you're probably not being accountable to yourself. And and what I mean by that is that um, if you see yourself surrounded by people which are leading you down the wrong path, you probably need to realize that oh, that's not the right path for you. And to exit that path takes courage because you're going to have to have some tough conversations, right? Yeah. I needed to be clear on my ambition And Mm -hmm. I felt that maybe I didn't have that support or was getting dragged down a little bit. That's how I felt at the time. But now that I look back on it, I probably should have been a fraction more proactive to be the better version of myself. 
I, I mean, that that just resonates with me so strongly. It, when you just want to feel like you belong somewhere, you mistake it for trying to fit yourself in and therefore mold yourself into a version that isn't authentic to who you are because you're like, well, I just don't want to rock the boat. I just want to make sure that these people still invite me to the party. <laughs> you yep. know what I mean? These are lessons that only kind of come in with age, with sort of understanding yourself better because it's only, I feel like these days that we encourage kids from a younger age to be authentically themselves. It's, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, the re- reality is, is that the only way that we sort of knew how or what I saw what this was the culture would be to have 10 cans and use the sponsor's product, which was Benson and Hedges at the back you yeah. know, at the time. Then. So we were sponsored by a beer product, right? And also s- cigarettes. And they're there, ready, av- ready and available. And uh, I got to about 25, I think, 25, which, which is the learning process of what you're talking about. There came a real light bulb moment where the switch was flicked on, and that was the moment where I just had to be a better version of myself, saying, no, no, if I don't do this, if I don't make change, I'm not going to represent my country. My dream, as you talked mm. about, would not be achievable. My choices were, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to that pub on Friday night or we're not doing that. No, no, I'm going to stay at home and do this. So it took me sort of out of that little comfort zone and, and took me on a path of, I guess, what's probably called professionalism. Because also, don't forget, culturally, though, you know, the, the cricketing heroes, like, you know, the stories of Booney on the yes. flight and things like that. And we think that that's the... Rather than framing it as they were successful in spite of it, yep. it seems like you should be successful with that anyway. Like yeah. it's like, oh, well, you know, that's probably why they're, they're such legends. And you you idolize that kind of behavior. I know myself, like, again, international student who came to Australia and turns out I can finish a beer, a jug of beer in 11 seconds. Ooh. Yeah, it became a hero. <laughs> like, of course, that fed into my ego. And of course, you know, as a 19-year-old, yeah. all of a sudden I'm getting attention that, you know, I wasn't getting otherwise. Yep. But, but it is funny how they can suddenly, t- it tips over. And you realize, no, 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 I need to stop disappointing myself because you're so desperate to get the approval of others. I forgot to get my own approval. It took me time, but I got there eventually where I'm like, no, no, this is not good enough for me. And I, you know, did lose a few friends along the way when I quit drinking and things like that. But my life is infinitely better because of it. I, I Look, I'm involved with a group called the Rising Kings, which runs through a number of sort of commitments that you have to do during the day to actually be a better version of yourself. And one of them is in the 12-week period is actually to give up drinking. And it's amazing how difficult it is for certain people. And I look back going through this process and I only played six test matches. And I think, well, if I had been introduced to that or had the courage to do that for a period of time, I probably would have played 50 or 60. Yeah, for me though, I'm still extremely proud of what I managed to achieve in a really tough environment along with a list of hugely amazing competitors and, mm. and play with the best people. You yeah. Know? Like to play with Langer, Hayden, Ponting, Martin, Gilchrist, Warren, McGrath, Lee, Gillespie. Even in the oppositions, the number of like bowlers that you would have faced and things like that. It is that thing of like realizing that you, you did it. You know what I mean? It's just such a thing that we forget to celebrate our wins. Hundred percent. Yeah, there's there's a real satisfaction in 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 following through and achieving something. Uh-huh. A lot of us, a lot of us pack in about seventy uh-huh. percent along the way, right? Right. Even if it's a small goal, right? It might be ten push-ups a day. Yeah. To even find the commitment to do ten push-ups a day, people struggle. Yeah. It's ten. It takes you about twenty-eight seconds. Not well, even that. Uh, probably you know, about twenty-eight you know? minutes for me, but that's <laughs> different. <laughs> but it's like, oh, where am I? Where in my life can I do that? Where do I find the time to do that? 
You know, it's a simple thing. It's just finding time to actually do something which, you know, is achievable. What are the things that you have found in your life that has contributed to your net happiness in everyday life even today? Camaraderie. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. That opening up to other people in which you would never have normally met. So the cricket world is great because it actually is international. It takes you far and wide into different communities, right? So, for example, you know, when you're playing the Indian Premier League, then, you know, the the choices and the people you hang around with are not the normal, right? So, you you know, you're you're in India, you know, you're in a culture of Rajasthan Royals or Mumbai Indians and you're with these superstars of India and around the world. Culturally, you'll you'll eat that food. You'll mm. find out about people. Um, so for me, that's that's the long lasting legacy of cricket. I think the best thing about sport and about team sport is the people you meet, and particularly in your own little community, grassroots sport. There's always someone around your area that you you come across that's involved in sport, yeah. community sport. So for me, it's just the great thing that there's always a connection somehow. I think one of the biggest things which opened my mind as well as and every cricket around the world, and T20's changed it because of this, and, and that was the uh, the Andrew Simons saga about the, the monkey gate. Yeah, I remember um, that. Andrew Simons actually went and played for, I think it was Mumbai Indians, where Harbhajan Singh was playing. Uh-huh. And, and you could imagine that there was a fair build of negativity around what happened. For, for the reference of maybe some of the listeners who might not be aware, it was that Harbhajan Singh called Andrew Simons a monkey. Alleged. Allegedly called yep. him a monkey. And then that was about what the, what the, the racial connotations around. That's right. So then these two who, you know, had some on-field spats and off the ground as well, go and play in the same team. And this is what cricket's great for. They become best friends, which is insane, right? Because you would never have picked it. And they become close friends and understand each other. And that's what T20 cricket's done because it's enabled Australians particularly to go up and play with people who you've been in battle with. Mm. And all of a sudden, the hatred or the the rivalry, it's broken down because you realise that, hey, they're good people. Yeah. And we like spending time with people from Bangladesh, from South Africa, from New Zealand, from England, from all over the globe. It's fun. And so almost that rivalry feels like it's sort of disappeared, even though we're thick into the T20 world, you can see it a little bit, but everyone's friends. Because competitive rivalry and healthy competition is something that you don't want to lose in your sport. But I think we all love the stories of that, oh, once once you cross that white line, you need to go back into the dressing rooms, how things change. I've been lucky enough to chat to Asanka Gurusinga, the guru, guru. specifically around the 95, the controversial Boxing Day Test match and whatnot. And he said, yeah, the tension was high and it was very uncomfortable because it felt like the rules around the, the, the no ball trickled into the vibe of the teams. And it was very, just one of the most toughest tours that he had been part of. However, you know, in the final test match, he said that, you know, he wasn't sure when, when Taylor walked in whether he was going to get, you know, beat up or anything like that because yeah. the tension was so high. But it normalized and just going, you know what? Yeah, we're all just a bunch of blokes who are living out our dream here. Let's leave the the aggression and and competitiveness on the field, yep. and just you know enjoy this moment of it. Well, I think for the guru that season, he actually made about three centuries against Australia, yeah. and I think his biggest downfall was not Murali Duran; it was actually getting out to Ricky Ponting. I reckon at the MCG Boxing Day Test. <laughs> I don't remember yeah, I remember it because I think punter <laughs> talks about it all the time. Um, <laughs> I mean, who who would have thought, right? You get out, you can get out to. Oh, who, who was playing back then? Let's call it McDermott, McGrath, yeah. Lee, whoever, and you get out to Ricky Ponting. You'd yeah. be spewing if you're the Yeah, guru. how many overseers he bowled in his <laughs> life? Hardly any, hardly yeah. any. 
Uh, Hoji, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is, I mean, again, like I said, it's such a surreal moment for me and I really appreciate you allowing me to have that moment. So thanks for coming in, mate. Uh, pleasure's all mine, Jerob. Thanks for having me. As Brad put it there so nicely, playing sport is a great way to let off some steam and build a strong group of friends. Right up, I'm off to try my hand at dodgeball. And if it doesn't go too well, I think next episode is going to come in handy. Because next time on The Driver's Seat, we take a little bit of quiet time and talk about sleep. Why you need it and how you can put yourself in the right mood for some decent shut-eye. This whole thing about you need eight hours of sleep is really just a social construct. That's next time on The Driver's Seat. Listener.